Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I want to let you know about something exciting. Today, the Lincoln Project is launching our Take Back the Flag initiative. For too long, too many Americans have been afraid or worried to fly the American flag because they think it's associated with Trump or some sort of right-wing extremism. Guys, it is not their flag. It is not his flag. It is our flag. Please send us photos of you and Old Glory to info at lincolnproject.us and tell us why you are happy to fly the American flag. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Newton, an expert in both homeland and national security, and the chief strategy officer for Moonshot, a tech company seeking to end online harm. Prior to Moonshot, she served in numerous roles in the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration, including as a senior advisor, deputy chief of staff to multiple DHS secretaries, and he's the assistant secretary for counterterrorism and threat prevention. Elizabeth also served in the Bush 43 administration in the aftermath of September 11th, serving on the inaugural staff of the White House Homeland Security Council, now part of the NSC. She is a board member of the National Immigration Forum, founder and member of the Council on National Security and Immigration, a former co-director of the Republican Accountability Project, and a national security contributor for ABC News. Today, she's coming to us from Western Colorado. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Garrett Graff after listening to his Long Shadow podcast. And you're featured in that. And, and for those of you watching and listening, if you haven't listened to Garrett's podcast, I wholeheartedly recommend it to you. But I was interested, Elizabeth, in the idea that when you're at the Department of Homeland Security and you see these threats, you know, right-wing extremism specifically rising, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers. Tell us a little bit about the dynamic, because we've both been fortunate or unfortunate to work in federal agencies where normally what you're doing at the agency is in line almost exclusively with what ultimately the White House wants, because they're usually the ones telling you. But in your situation, you're trying to combat a threat internal to the United States. But you know, if you get too loud about it, the person who most doesn't want you to do that work, the president of the United States will shut you down. That's right. And I was fortunate to work for secretaries that were adamant that we lean in and address this threat with the seriousness that it deserved. And we really had two challenges. One was the entire counterterrorism apparatus was not designed for this threat. So you would turn to your intelligence analyst, the briefer in the morning and say, what does this mean? And if you were asking them that question about ISIS, about Iran, about Al Qaeda, they could tell you an event like this is significant, is not significant, and here's why. They couldn't do that for anything domestic because they hadn't been studying it. 
And this is not a slight at their capabilities as much as, you know, an analyst takes years to develop and understand an enemy. And they had not been allowed to study. If somebody had been assigned something, it would usually be a specific case, kind of a one-off, and then they would go back to the international terrorism mission. So we had an intelligence community that didn't understand the threat. So when the policymakers are saying, what does this mean? Should we expect more of this? We weren't getting answers. So that was one challenge. The second challenge was clearly the president was contributing to the problem. It is certainly easier to see this in hindsight. In the moment, because we're not getting good intelligence, we're not fully able to piece together the cause and effect. But we can now look back and say, Yes, when he would say certain things, hate crimes would increase. And there's certain chilling moments where even in the 2015-2016 campaign cycle, he would comment on something. And you might argue he was commenting on policy. We should have stronger immigration controls. Okay, that's a decent policy conversation to have. But the way he would talk about it was very dehumanizing very fear-mongering. And lo and behold, you end up with actions shortly after he would say things, including the attack by Dylan Roof, happened the very next day after Trump had said some dehumanizing things about immigrants, calling them criminals and thugs. And, and so you end up with this, over time, this picture starting to come together of, hey, when he says something, it's very small percentage, but we're a large country and a small percentage of a large number is still significant. And so he would say things and then you would see actions. And so it took us time to go, oh, no, he's like he's actually contributing to the problem. So there, there's that aspect. And then there's the aspect of any time he was confronted with a problem that somewhere in his mind had been lodged as he had been attacked over. So whether it was Russia or his very poor handling of Charlottesville, it's hard to say that he was intentionally trying to promote white supremacy. But for sure, he was defensive about the fact that he was criticized around his handling of Charlottesville. So anytime you started to bring up, hey, we really need to do something about this white supremacist domestic extremism problem, he would get rather defensive and you never knew what was going to come out of the man's mouth. So you had to be really cautious about what you bring up and when, because you never know when he might say, like, you guys shouldn't be working on that at all. And it might not actually be something that he meant. It's just this defensive ego narcissist approach to the world. Like it was never about like, what's good for America or how do we keep people safe? And so we always were walking on eggshells, wanting to try to drive progress on countering the domestic threat, but recognizing that we couldn't be that open in how we discussed it with him. We, we could with his senior staff, but even it was his senior staff that were wise enough to go, well, yeah, we need to do something on this. Let's frame this in terms of violence prevention as opposed to domestic terrorism, just in case. So I spent six months at the Department of Homeland Security right when it first opened its doors, for lack of a better way to put it. I was at FEMA. This is pre-Katrina. And, you know, the one thing is that FEMA was always sort of a strange fit because it was like 5,000 people at an agency of like 300,000 cops. And the thing that I'm interested in, Elizabeth, about the intelligence piece of this is that most of those law enforcement, either officers or officer adjacent, right, all they do is domestic stuff, right? I mean, maybe, okay, maybe the border patrol, but, you know, a lot of the agency within Homeland Security was domestic. 
homeland security. So was it just the post 9-11 hangover, just like we saw in the wake of the Cold War, which was they geared, let's say, the CIA or the intelligence apparatus for 50 years to one threat. Now we've got another. Then they switched to another. But now it's like now we got to look in the mirror. And that's also a tough thing, I think. It is a tough thing to look in the mirror and realize that the problem's coming from within. I remember when I kind of came to that conclusion myself and it really hit home on January 6th, right? Like I have this memory on 9-11 driving out of the city, looking in my rear view mirror and seeing the Capitol and going, is it going to be there tomorrow? Because there were still planes in the air and the marvel that Flight 93 was and wondering, you know, what could have happened if not for the bravery of those men and women. And for 20 years, that drove those of us in the national security community. We never want 9-11 to happen again, right? Like that was the motive for all of us of that generation. And on January 6th, the Capitol actually is attacked. It's not attacked by Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any of the people that we've been worrying about overseas. It's attacked by us. It's attacked by people from my community. They were conservatives. They were Republicans. They were Christians. It was very gutting to realize that we had spent so much time worrying about people over there bringing harm to us when, in fact, the harm was metastasizing from the inside. So you're right. There was a bit of the department, not all of us in the counterterrorism community, not fully understanding how dangerous the internal threat was. But certainly, like DHS has many missions, as you know, it's got that FEMA response mission, it's got the immigration citizenship mission, it's got the borders mission, aviation security pushing our borders out. That was a huge post 9-11 push is like, make it harder to get here. And, and arguably, we were pretty successful at that. But let me ask you this, because, you know, you go back to, you know, if you listen to Garrett's podcast, and I'm sure you've now done all the history on this, you go back to Ruby Ridge in 1992, Waco, obviously, in 93, then, you know, the reaction to those things is Timothy McVeigh in 1995 in Oklahoma City. So this has always been part of us. I mean, even going back to, let's say, you know, post-Civil War through the Civil Rights Movement, right? The KKK was an not only an active organization and growing organization in many states, but they were also senators, governors, sheriffs, cops. And so we had this sort of weird crossing of the streams in which you had a president who maybe he wasn't intentionally taking the side of white supremacists, but he was always happy to do so even unintentionally. And he also knew, and this is one thing that you'd said to Garrett was, these are his voters. So he wasn't going to go and upset his voters. And you can even see that today, Elizabeth, which is he's always happy to say something crazy because he knows it's going to the base. And he's always most concerned for the base. And to him, the base will get him through. And if it doesn't, obviously it's been stolen. That's right. He's very loyal to those who are loyal to him, but kind of a, in a weird way, right? Like the people who are might try to be like, we, we're trying to do the best thing for your legacy, sir. Like them, he's happy to dismiss, but like there's just this guttural loyalty that he has. And which is why when we look back and we try to go, well, is he a racist? Is he a white supremacist? It's hard to really pinpoint motive because so much of his motive is just about him. So there's no doubt that he said racist things and there's no doubt that he was promoting and encouraging ideology around the white power movement, some of the anti-government extremist movements. He was bare minimum complicit in empowering those groups. Does he actually believe it? I, it's hard to say. I think he just, he cares mostly about himself and he saw them as 
loyal to him and as a way for him to win the presidency and maintain power. And he's not opposed to violence, right? I mean, we heard him during the 2015-2016 campaign, you know, knock the hell out of that guy, I'll pay your legal bills, right? I mean, as an old advanceman, we were talking right before we, we got on, like, violence at a rally was a very rare thing. I don't know that I ever saw it. Once in a while, you know, a protester, the police would be asking them to leave or whatever. But violence was something that was just unheard of. But he encouraged it, whether or not that was amongst people who were there to protest him, certainly towards the media, right? All those pictures we still see, and they still talk about, you know, the media and their crooks and they're, they're out to get them and they're the elite and everything else. And the people standing at the bike rack in the press stand screaming at them and calling them traitors. So he was never afraid to engage in that sort of rhetoric. You know, we know that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, you know, who shot three people, killed two of them in Kenosha, had been to a Trump rally. We were talking about, you know, via email earlier, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the trial's going on. I think it's about to start or it's already started. Another guy that's, you know, another young guy with an AR-15 who is radicalized online, the guy in Allen, Texas, right, with the SS flashes and the swastika on his chest. And so my question is, how do you see this threat today? And then is it going to be the lone gunman or the, I mean, it didn't seem to me that the Proud Boys were ever the United States Marines right? Like they weren't that organized. There were a lot of them and they were happy to fight in the streets, but they didn't seem to be a particularly well-organized and well-drilled sort of, you know, fighting club, I guess. I think that's right. And even when the Proud Boys got that attention from the debate where he told them to stand back and stand by, I was least concerned of all of the groups out there. I'm least concerned about them. And when it comes to the threat from a security perspective, Groups are easier for our current tools or current law enforcement tools to be able to be able to disrupt. Like if, if there's a group out there trying to plan something, it is easier for us to detect it and disrupt it through those traditional tools. The lone gunman or the lone mass attacker is much harder to detect. And that's where we we really need different tools. And we can talk about that in a minute. Um, but in terms of like where we are in the threat, it is exponentially higher than it was just a few years ago. We're, we're in the ninth year of a sharp uptick in domestic terrorist activity. There is no sign and indication that it is lessening, rather that it's increasing. There were an average of 31 people killed every year by terrorism from 2015 to 2021. That's when the stats were kept, with the exception of 2020 when we had fewer mass gatherings. But the 20 years prior, when they started collecting data in 1994, there were only three years where the number of people killed exceeded eight. So we went from like an average of eight or less to now 31 people a year killed by domestic terrorists. If I were to tell you that those 31 people are actually being killed by ISIS or by Al-Qaeda, you can bet that the, the federal government's action would just, I mean, alarm bells would be ringing, we'd be throwing money at the problem. It would be a massive effort to try to address, but because it's domestic and because we keep framing it as lone gunmen as opposed to a movement that has been around for really over 100 years, but in the current form over the last 40 years, it's easy for us to just think it's random, but it's not random. Right. So they're individuals, but they're connected somehow. Exactly. They're connected to this mass movement. And the other piece that often 
makes it difficult to communicate and why it's, it's kind of their asymmetric advantage. Their ideology is constantly moving and individual attackers are more and more likely to build their own ideology. We call it ideological fluidity. So you can find the Latino who is a white supremacist and you as an American white person might think, well, that's contradictory. But if you dive into what he had been exposed to, it's not at all contradictory. There are Nazis in South America and Argentina, and there is a white supremacist ideology among Latinos. Now, it's not very prevalent, but it does exist. And the basic idea is, even if it might vary depending on the person, is an idea of supremacy. Like, my race, my people are better than everybody else, and we should dominate, or we are fearful that we are losing our place in society, or we're losing our ability to do what we used to be able to do. I mean, when you take a step back, what extremism actually is, is this idea that somehow your group, however you identify, is being threatened by some outgroup, and your success or survival is being threatened. And you can just stop with that. And there might be truth to it, right? It might be true that your group's success is being threatened by some other group. The next step that makes it extremist is that your solution to that problem is hostile action. So when our politicians are saying things like the liberals are trying to take away your gun rights, okay, that by itself is a policy argument. I might disagree with that characterization, but that happens in our politics all the time. The problem is that our politicians are then either directly stating or then kind of implying that the answer is go buy more guns so you can defend yourself when they come and take them, right? So there's this implication that hostile action is necessary to defend yourself. And it's not based in fact. That said, you do have, unfortunately, examples where the government has botched things. Ruby Ridge, Waco are two great examples of that. So what tends to happen with people that are recruited into extremism is they've had something in their own life that has caused them a sense of humiliation or a loss or a sense of no belonging. And then extremists will take bits of fat, manipulate it, twist it, and they can use that to recruit somebody who's vulnerable into their ideology. And I think some of what we're living through, we can pinpoint to great disruption. I think Garrett Graff in Long Shadow that you were referencing earlier kind of paints a really great nuanced picture here. In the 90s, globalization really disrupted the typical American life, if you will. And that disruption continues. Globalization and uncertainty has progressed and there have been great things from it, but it has also really created a lot of change really quickly. And people tend to not like change. And you add to it great deals of uncertainty, like wars from the last 20 years, financial crisis in 2008, COVID pandemics where everything gets disrupted. You're dealing with mass uncertainty at a nationwide scale. It's not surprising that for some Americans, the way that they've dealt with that great disruption is looking for black and white answers that extremists offer. Extremists prey on uncertainty. They prey on people who've gone through great trauma. And it's not surprising that we now have more people that are radicalizing or are radicalized because of the experience of the last 15 years. So let me ask about those that are doing the radicalizing. Are they on a like a big, you know, 
black fishing boat and they're tossing a net into the ocean of humanity and, you know, hoping they pull enough people out? Have they identified these people individually? I mean, I know that this kind of rhetoric is everywhere. And one of my last guests, Yale Eisenstadt, talked about how Facebook actually created, you know, a fake profile of a woman, conservative, but not crazy. And within three days, she's being invited to these groups. She doesn't, you know, they don't have her join any. And then within a week or 10 days, she's just being blasted with vast right wing misinformation, disinformation, really ugly stuff. So is it like, do they find the one guy, the veteran who's the Timothy McVeigh, for lack of a better way to put it, or is it they just sort of blast it all out into the ether and hope that somebody picks it up? Both. And is it even that organized, frankly? There are certain people, individuals who are more sophisticated than others. One of the advantages and probably one of the reasons we were flat-footed on the domestic violent extremism front is that there is kind of a well-known phenomenon that among those who gravitate towards groups that are white supremacist or anti-government, there tends to be a lot of infighting. There tends to be like personality types that just don't get along with people. And so they kind of self-implode. And so you often hear law enforcement who infiltrate and who work with these groups to try to make sure they disrupt things say like, you know, we have to do it because you never know when somebody actually will be sophisticated enough to pull something off. But they often kind of get in their own way and so the groups, something to be concerned about. But like I said, that's not where most of the violence comes from. The violence tends to come from the mass attacker and the person motivated for that. It might be pure ideology, like I am concerned about the Great Replacement and so we need to kill Jews. That's what the Pittsburgh attacker, the Tree of Life attacker His motivation seems to be primarily an anti-immigrant and believing that Jews are behind the Great Replacement, which, by the way, is a conspiracy theory that's been around for centuries, right? It's like totally false, but it just kind of retreads. It's sort of like the control-alt-delete of extremism, right? Which is when we've sort of run out of the thread, let's go back to the Jews. Yes, it's it's so true. And I was at a symposium at Georgetown on some of these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that have been around for a long, long time. And somebody framed it as like behind every other violent extremist ideology, you will find the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory is like one of the basis for whatever they believe. I mean, QAnon's got it right. The protocols of the elders of Zion you know, the uh, blood libel, which, you know, at Doral, which is a Trump property, right? They had these crazy people. And one of them was talking about, you know, blood libel, which is this idea that Jews drink the blood of Christian babies and it gives them everlasting life. And I mean, this is the thing that's so crazy about this, right? Elizabeth is like, these aren't new, right? They have been around for centuries, in some cases, millennia. But now, you know, the information superhighway, which is zipping this stuff all over the country and all over the world. That's exactly right. And so I said both and to the question, there's no way that it's as bad as it is absent social media, right? Like just the amplification, the ease with which the spread of these ideas happened and the way that they morph, they react to real world events, right? So it used to be if you wanted to go down the rabbit hole of anti-gov or white supremacy, a friend might show you the Turner Diaries, they might pass a VHS tape, They might mail newsletters, right, like analog style spreading of information, and it causes damage. Certainly the in-person connection provided more of a sense of belonging, and so you might have more success in recruiting people that way. 
But now you can just spread your ideology through memes. And half the time people think they're funny and they don't even realize that it's actually referencing a, a horrid conspiracy theory or that it's white supremacist propaganda. So part of their tactic now is they seed spaces that would otherwise be considered mainstream. And then over time, they might introduce entry-level conspiracy theories. And then once they've hooked you, they may introduce you to the darker stuff. One of the classics that a friend of mine at American University told me about was a series of cooking videos that they put on YouTube. And you might just really get into these cooking videos. And like by video seven, they're starting to introduce general white supremacy ideology. But you're so connected to that person that you might not even pick it up at first until a few more episodes go by and you're like, wait a second, this got really dark really fast. And so they're as sophisticated as any other marketer out there using technology to spread their ideas. And sometimes it might not be very sophisticated in that they just kind of mass put it out there. But we were watching chat rooms after January 6th and after the inauguration of Biden, and we were watching people coach other violent extremists, hey, now's the prime time to go after disheartened QAnon followers, but don't be direct about it. And they were using the same principles that we use when we talk about how we disengage or de-radicalize someone. They were using the same ideas. Give them a sense of empathy, give them a sense that they still belong, that you have a better solution for them, but you don't want to come right at them trying to counter their QAnon ideology. You want to just be with them in their disappointment and their anger. So they are sophisticated. They do actually go out and recruit. They look for people that are vulnerable. They prey on kids. And that's probably my biggest concern for our present moment. You know, it's not every mass attack that we've had. It comes from somebody that's young. But disproportionately, we are starting to see more and more Gen Z and the younger cadre of millennials. And it's, for me, it's not disconnected from how online they have been growing up and how much the way social media has formed their identity. And therefore, when crisis comes in that person's life, it is a little bit easier for them to take that step to an extremist ideology that suggests that you are morally justified in taking life to address this grievance. So is the person most likely to be radicalized and or the target of radicalization? I mean, are these the traditional young men outcasts? I mean, we have a huge problem with young men. Um, it manifests in a lot of ways, right? It's not just manifest through extremism. And girls, the challenges, the way that they deal with it tends to be depression and anxiety, right? Like, so, so the underlying causes behind extremism also cause other social ills. And in the middle-aged, you might say, like, look at our opioid addiction, look at our suicide, right? Our deaths of despair. And then for some, it's I'm going to join the Proud Boys or I'm going to join a militia or I'm going to go commit an attack. So when you peel back the layers, violent extremism is one of many social ills that we are now dealing with. And it's these underlying social factors that need to be addressed in order for us to reduce the violence, reduce the deaths of despair, reduce depression and anxiety. They're all kind of interconnected. But now, candidly, you got you know, one whole political party that I believe is part of a larger movement that sees these as assets to their efforts. So here's my concern. When we put 
anybody that associates with the Republican Party in the bucket of extremist or potential extremist. <laughs> we are further driving them into a state of vulnerability where they could get recruited into extremism. So I disagreed when President Biden gave a speech last year and labeled it MAGA extremism. I don't know that that's helpful. That's not to say that there aren't people that are very MAGA who are also meet that definition of extremism that I gave. But if the goal is to turn down the tension, if the goal is to find a release valve, then labeling people, especially with a word that we have all associated with like the horrible images of September 11th, is probably not the right way to go about it. That said, I do think it's important for people from the community, uh, like myself, from conservatism, from republicanism, to say like, hey, we have a problem. We are vulnerable and there are extremists out there taking advantage of this moment to try to recruit us into their disgusting solutions of violence as a way to deal with our grievance. And so we need our political leadership. Republicans, if they were in front of me, I, I would absolutely tell them, stop painting the other side in inhuman terms. Stop othering. Stop painting this as an existential threat. I know you want to win an election. I know you want to raise funds. I know that the way that you drive the money and drive the votes is through fear, but you are also killing people in the process. I know you're not directly picking up the gun, but you're participating in this toxic soup that is creating the context by which people somehow get to the place where they think that violence is the only answer. So we need responsible politicians. We need responsible people with media platforms to ratchet down the language a bit. But we also need those on the left to be nuanced in their concern about the problem. And sometimes what you will see is the blanket statements that all Republicans are racist or the blanket statements that because you're pro-life, you are an extremist. That's not helpful either. <laughs> so we keep driving each other to these polarized extremes. And all the polls show that the average person in America is not an extremist and they're not holding the views that the other side thinks that they do. And we somehow need to recapture that exhausted majority of common sense people in this country and have those voices amplified. As opposed to right now, we keep amplifying the worst on both sides and that's not helping anybody. Well, so we've talked about Trump. You saw, I think it was either earlier this week or late last week, that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, is now running for the Republican nomination, talked about it's his mission, you know, in eight years of the office to eradicate leftists in the country. I don't know if he used eradicate, but it was a destruction type word. You know, Tim Scott, who's supposed to be the nice guy in the race, talked about the left is the biggest threat, you know, to the country. Nikki Haley says wokeism is more dangerous than any pandemic might be. And not DeSantis necessarily, but Scott and Haley are supposed to be the normal ones. And they're using this stuff. It's really disheartening. Uh, Asa Hutchinson seems to be doing a little bit better of a job on that front. Yeah. Well, uh, Hutchinson, he was at DHS when I was, also yes. a, a, a decent guy. And Sununu. So there, there are some voices out there. Larry Hogan, he's not running, but 
you know, there are some voices that are trying to model, like, this is what it looks like to do this in a healthy, responsible way. This, you know, let's talk about our policy disagreements, but we don't have to think that the other side is evil. But you're right, like the Republican Party, I don't have much hope for at the moment. I don't see too many responsible leaders. And when I go home, I I see a lot of Republicans that were never like fond of Trump, but still wanted a Republican in office who are really excited about DeSantis. And you're, yeah, he's not as bad as Trump. Trust me, like four more years of Trump, I'm not sure we exist as a country. And I mean that from a nuclear war standpoint. (laughs) The man is crazy, right? right? Like true existential threat. Like he cannot be trusted with the power that the United States military has. I don't think DeSantis is going to do that, right? Like, I think DeSantis weakens democracy. He has too many authoritarian streaks for me. I just, he makes me very uncomfortable. And I'm a conservative, not really a Republican. So he makes me uncomfortable for a number of reasons. I would much rather see one of the other Republican primary candidates make some advancements. And I do think that my guess is that the Tim Scotts and the Nikki Haley's think, well, if I can get there and become the standard bearer, I will over time move us back to a healthier Republican Party. I just, I personally think, no, like, this is enough of an evil. You need to call it what it is. You don't dehumanize your opponents. You don't use words like eradicate. And we need our politicians to be modeling that. And it makes me very concerned that we're going to see more violence in 2024 because our politicians continue the playbook of, you know, what gets me the most votes and they're lacking the character to say like, no, I should have a line. We shouldn't participate in rhetoric that has been shown now to lead to violence, crime, and even death. And we have too many of them who are willing to ignore that just so that they can get their votes and their money. Let's take this forward to the 2024 campaign because a couple of things. One is, I think in this Faustian bargain the Republican Party has made, If Trump somehow loses the nomination, one, he'll claim it was stolen. But two, even if the GOP somehow gets through that, I think a whole bunch of his people just stay home, which maybe is the best possible outcome, (laughs) right? Just like it all collapses. But, you know, Elizabeth, one of my concerns is, and you live this up close and personal, is that if he is the nominee again in 2024 and he loses again, Right. First, he's never going to call it legitimate. They're going to say he stole it from me again. And we saw what they tried to do on January 6th a couple of years ago. I mean, that's what's concerning to me is, you know, they talk about every coup that goes unpunished is just practice. So how do you see that? How as a domestic security expert, how do we as individuals do our part to prepare for something like that? Because I'll tell you, it's awful scary. It can be overwhelming. And I know that the guy in the in the subway sandwich shop with the AR-15 and like two handguns and a knife and everything looks buffoonish, but there's a reason he's doing that. And it's because he knows it makes other people really, really nervous. I am somewhat hopeful, but I do tend to be accused of being an optimist. Well, that's good. We need more of you. If he were to win the Republican primary, but lose the general, part of what made January 6th seem to work was the fact that you had organized groups like the Oath Keepers. And those folks have now been convicted of seditious conspiracy, which is historically a very difficult thing to convince a jury of. And they're going away for quite some time. I don't know that you're going to find too many Americans who are willing to put their neck out, especially knowing that 
hey, Trump can't pardon them. So before the election, they might be willing to do some things, assuming that he's going to win and assuming that he will pardon them. So I do anticipate that you could have some problems during the election process. I do think it's less likely that we would see a repeat, in part because I think the Justice Department is doing a remarkable job, maybe arguably a little slow, but they're doing a remarkable job of holding people accountable. And that has a chilling effect on that mass political violence. It does not have a chilling effect on a lone gunman. So they're seeking the death penalty of the attacker of the Pittsburgh Tree of Life shooting. And one of the arguments is that it's a deterrence effect. And I just don't see evidence in what we know about mass attackers that the death penalty would deter them. It should be whether you seek the death penalty or not should be done for justice's sake. Well, not only that, you have to assume they went in there thinking they weren't walking out, right? That's exactly right. When somebody gets to that place of, I'm going to go do something, part of the glory that they are seeking and the significance that they're seeking is in death. So those types of things, the justice system doesn't deter a lone attacker, but it can deter that mass political violence movement that we saw on January 6th. And then as to your question of what we should be doing, what we can be doing, here's the good news. And I don't think we talk about this well enough in our country because there's a lot to be focused on that's really bad. Ninth year of spikes in domestic terrorist attacks and plots and more people, like significant numbers of people in this country that at least cognitively, maybe not, they wouldn't take the steps, but they believe that violence is sometimes necessary to achieve their political aims, which, by the way, is the definition of terrorism. So, like, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about the state that we're in. But we have been doing 20 years now of research on why people radicalize and what we can do to reduce the factors that lead to radicalization. And the government now has a structure in place that this is part of what we worked on during the Trump administration. The Biden administration adopted it. And we've been working quietly to try to build up capability in all of the states to be able to build resilience in vulnerable spaces. And then really importantly, what we call secondary prevention is training bystanders to know the signs and indicators of somebody that's radicalizing and being able to get them help before they cross a criminal threshold. And critically, where we have gone kind of askew in the country is that we have always just defaulted to calling law enforcement. But because of the wonderful protections we have under the Constitution, law enforcement can't do something to disrupt if you're not criminal yet, right? So we want to move upstream. We've learned that it's much easier to prevent radicalization than to try to de-radicalize. Right, because that's sort of like dealing with an addict, right? That's exactly right. And in fact, the entire model is built off a public health approach. If you think about our doctors tell us to get our annual checkup and to exercise and eat right, because that is much simpler to do than to try to cure disease, right? So we need to build healthier communities and we need to get help to people before they cross that criminal threshold. And then if we can build out that capability across all of our communities, and again, I mean, I'm realistic here, 10, 20 years of work that we have ahead of us. We drastically need more mental and behavioral health professionals in this country. But if we could do that, I do think that we start to turn the tide of the violence we're seeing in this country. And the thing that each of us can be doing is we can get outside of our bubble and talk to people that think differently than us. We can model for our kids what it looks like to respectfully disagree. We can be 
kind and empathetic to people that are going through rough times. And if you have a loved one that you're concerned about, like their behavior has changed, they seem to be making references to things that you suspect might be a conspiracy theory or a white supremacist thing, don't turn a blind eye to it. Try to get them help. If they're your child, you can kind of require that they go to counseling, right? But if they're an adult, it's a little more challenging. And there are groups out there, and I'm happy to give you some of the names of these groups and you can put them in the show notes, but there are groups out there that can come alongside families to help them if their loved one is in the process of radicalizing and needs additional help to pull them out. But the most important thing is if you're in relationship with somebody that is radicalizing, it's not to reject them. It's not to argue with them about their ideology. That just pushes them, right? That pushes them away and it creates more psychosocial need, right? Like they feel more humiliated. They feel like they have less belonging. What we know changes people is when they feel loved and when they feel heard. And it's not like it's a magic bullet and it takes a long time. But the most important thing you can do is if you see somebody you know needs help, try to get them that help and try to stay in their life. Those two things are really important. And then we all can just be a little bit kinder. And it sounds so kindergarten, but seriously, we are a very mean country right now and we need to decide to be different. We need to decide that the person I'm interacting with on the other side of the grocery line or in the parking lot or at work is a human being worthy of respect and kindness, even if they're mean to you. I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to do sometimes, but love is the antidote to fear and hate. And we need to start practicing that. Along these lines. So tell us about Moonshot. Yeah. So the company I work for has been around for about seven or eight years, and they developed in partnership with one of Google's think tanks, Jigsaw, something called Redirect. And so we, in the online space, when people are searching for harmful content, we have technology in the background that is able to kind of figure out what might be going on in that person's life and offering them up an ad that they can voluntarily click on. So it's nothing is forced and we don't know who the person is. It's all privacy protections, but it allows an off-ramp for somebody that might be searching for harmful content. And what we found is like when somebody's searching for a harmful group, like I want to join the KKK. When we offer them an ad that says, you know, are you feeling lonely? Would you like to talk to somebody? We have a pretty high click-through rate and it appeals to people. Like it's giving them an opportunity to connect maybe with a counselor, maybe with some, you know, alternative content that kind of lowers the temperature, kind of depends on what they're searching for. But that's kind of where they started. And then we work with tech companies to help make their services safer. Would love to see the tech companies doing more on that front. Why don't they do more? Oh, it's got to be profits, right? The people that I know that do trust and safety work or have done trust and safety work at the tech companies are amazing people and they do great work and they have sounded the alarm. And sometimes it's just about the profit. And so that's why I've kind of come to the conclusion we need to regulate. But of course, that requires Congress to act. And well, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. So it's rather frustrating. But, you know, on the moonshot stuff and the redirect, which I think is fascinating, I think is a great idea. I don't remember who I talked to, but I've talked to somebody else, which is, you know, there's no friction right now between someone who might be radicalized and the tools that someone might employ directly or, or that the algorithm will serve to them. So it's just like if you can just 
give them that offer. Maybe they back up and they get back on the highway. But every time you do that, and if you do it more and more times, right, then it's like, oh, okay, all right, maybe I'm not so bad, right? Or to your point, there's a community group, right? It's always going to be easier with someone you have something in common with, someone who lives near you, someone who has a common background or whatever, same job, whatever it is, because you're right. Look, we pride ourselves in America on our sort of rugged individualism, although we're less rugged than we ever are. But that is also antithetical, Elizabeth, to community, which is sometimes, yeah, we do need each other. I mean, no one's anywhere on earth is living by themselves, right? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe there's one guy, you know, who's decided to go quote unquote off the grid and he can figure it out. But for the most of us, like we need a gas station, we need the power to come on, we need the garbage to be picked up. And we don't do those things ourselves. No, we don't. The beauty of Western civilization, prioritizing the individual has led to amazing things. We're kind of at maybe the, I'm, I'm hoping the end of the pendulum swing where people go, oh, there's only so much goodness there. Like we need each other. We need community. Whether you look at it from a spiritual perspective or a biological perspective, we're just not made to live by ourselves. And part of the psychosocial factors that are driving all of these ills, the violence, the extremism, the deaths of despair, the anxiety and the depression, it all kind of comes back to this space of somehow not actually having healthy, good, in real life, human connections. Right. Analog life. Because it is very easy, you know, with the exception of eating, drinking, breathing, and going to the bathroom, right, and sleeping, like you can live your whole life on this, right? Uh, someone, someone I interviewed said, you know, the average teen is spending nine and a half hours a day on a screen, like not good for anybody. First and foremost, the teen, right? Yes. And you had the Surgeon General finally put something out. I was so pleased to see this, that warning about the impact that social media has on youth. But why is that such a big deal? Why is that so controversial? I mean, we all know it. We're all living. If you've got kids of a certain age, we're all living it. What I'm hopeful is that by just kind of calling it like it is, that if you go back to like five years ago, when some of the data started coming out, there was this big push that like, well, we don't know that it's causal. We think it's just corollary. There's lots of other stuff going on. There's now enough data there to say, no, no, it's causal. Smoking is actually bad for you. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> so it was kind of an important step when you have the Surgeon General say like, hey, this is a danger. It changes, like I'm a mom, it changes the way that I even have the conversation with my kids. No, you're not getting a phone. I know some of your friends have it, but I wouldn't hand you a cigarette. I wouldn't hand you alcohol. And now there are doctors that can tell us that this actually hurts you. It hurts your brain. It hurts your emotional health. It hurts your ability to develop into a functioning adult. So no, you don't get that phone. And it makes it easier. It gives me as a parent a permission structure, right, to be able to hold the line and to engage with other parents and say like, hey, I think we can do better. Like parents that are 10 years ahead of us, they didn't know any better. So like when they're handing the iPhone to their 12-year-old, no parent in the right mind would be like, hey, let me give my kids something that's going to depress them. Like nobody would do that. But now we know. And now we can start having conversations as communities to say, like, let's hold off. Like instead of giving them a phone, let's give them a watch. I can still call them on the watch, but it's much harder to text. And texting is also one of the key places where a lot of bullying happens. And it's that key phase of adolescence where identity is formed that seems to be causing the biggest problems. And if we can hold off until past that crux of identity development, 
then I think our kids are be that much healthier. And the more I've dug into it, and I, I'm writing a book right now, and so I also was kind of looking at it through that lens. I was like reading uh, social psychologist insights on this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is part of the reason that we have more violence now. There is a nexus, there is a connection. And it's not just like the spread of the content. It is the identity formation gets hijacked. And when the brain and the emotional psychosocial factors are not developing into something mature, extremists can take advantage of that. Right. Well, let's avoid that as much as we can. And when your book is finished, we'd love you to come back. Okay, tell us where we can find you online, where we can find your work online, and where we can find Moonshot. Moonshot, uh, moonshotteam.org. Online, I'm at New Summits, and it's spelled kind of funny, N-E-U-S-U-M-M-I-T-S, because I love mountains. And my book comes out next March, and I would love to be able to come back and talk to you about it. Absolutely. We'd love to have you. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok. Don't get mad at me, Elizabeth, at Reed Galen, and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Elizabeth Newman, thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.